Well, all during sabbatical, I was mulling over this one question, and this might seem like a pretty fundamental or basic question, but I think it's an incredibly important question. It is this question I'd like to consider it today. What does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, think about how many different answers there could be to that question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Some of you are thinking, well, it means you go to church, or it means you go to Bible study, or it means you do good things and nice things and things that that are meant to glorify God. And maybe some of you even go, well, it means you give to local ministries, things like that. Is there anything else, though? I mean, all of that, all the stuff we do, what else? Is, Is there more? What does it mean to follow Jesus? You know, I was thinking about that question, and I would imagine that if I surveyed individuals in this room and and came to a collective answer, I, I would imagine it would be varied, maybe even a little murky. And I think the reason it would be varied and murky is because we are products of Christian culture. And I think Christian culture, and I'll be really upfront about this, has done the Christian church an incredible disservice. I think the Bible actually warned us against that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I I think that's why we're so varied, and that's why we're so murky. And the most fundamental question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I actually think if we look at the Scripture, that God gives in His Word a singular but oft-repeated and very clear answer. It's all over Scripture. We're just going to look at one passage that I think gets you after that answer. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. Read along with me as I read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Just a quick pause here. That's Simon being passive-aggressive. He's going, I'll do it if you really want me to do it, but it's a stupid idea. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them, and they came and filled both boats. So they began to sink. 
And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. First point I'd like to make from this text is that the magnificence of Jesus should create a personal crisis in each of our lives. Do you see that in this text? The personal crisis? Now, let me back up a little bit. I said the magnificence of Jesus. This passage itself doesn't really highlight the magnificence of Jesus, but for the fact that there's a miraculous catch of fish. But the book of Luke, if you're looking at this in context, is all about the magnificence of Jesus. In fact, you see that starting out in Luke chapter 1, where the archangel Gabriel says to Mary, who's about to have Jesus, I mean, she's getting ready to be pregnant with Jesus, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be greater and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, just to summarize the archangel Gabriel, he's saying Jesus is a really big deal. He, he's going to be a king sitting on the throne of David, but unlike David who's dead, his reign, his throne, his rule will never end. He's going to be a really big deal. And then you go to chapter 2, and it's not the archangel Gabriel anymore, but it's some angel talking to shepherds out in a field. And the angel said to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the word Lord there, that's not one you throw around. It's like, the master, it's the one who governs all things. This angel who is so glorious that the shepherds are scared to death, he goes, hey, settle down, people. I've got good news for you, good news, uh, this great message. Jesus, he's coming, he's Lord. He's going to rule, he's going to govern. Jesus is a really, really big deal. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist Someone comes to him and says, hey, are you the Christ? Because you seem like a really big deal. John the Baptist says, hey, you got to understand something here. There's one coming. I'm not fit to untie this guy's sandals. He's, he's it. He's the really big deal. And later on in that chapter, John the Baptist is going to baptize Jesus, and the Spirit of God is going to descend physically in the the form of a dove and land on Jesus' shoulder, and then God the Father is going to speak audibly and say, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The point is that Jesus is a really, really big deal. And so everything up until this has, has been all about Jesus being a re really big deal. Chapter 4, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, is tempted by Satan, but unlike the rest of us, he doesn't succumb to sin. And the point is, he's a really big deal. And so then we get to chapter 5. 
And in chapter 5, we need to acknowledge that while chapters 1 through 4 are all about Jesus being a really big deal, Simon Peter in chapter 5 hasn't read chapters 1 through 4 because it hasn't been written yet. So we know that Jesus is a really big deal, but to Simon Peter, this whole thing's a work in progress. He just doesn't quite get it yet. Now, he's had some experience before this with Jesus. We saw that in John chapter 1 when we were studying John chapter 1 last semester. I know you guys remember this. Andrew follows Jesus, spends the day with him, goes to his brother Simon and says, hey, we found the Christ. Jesus ends up meeting Simon and says, I'm going to start calling you Peter for now on. That's kind of a weird way to start a relationship, right? I mean, there's, there's some sort of statement of authority in that. Hi, West. I know your name is West. I'm going to call you Bob. You cool with that? I don't know if I am. Kind of depends on who's saying. I'm like, who are you? Somehow, Simon says, yeah, Peter's cool. But you still don't exactly know who Jesus is. And then in Luke chapter 4, toward the end, after the temptation, Jesus is actually in Simon's house. Simon Peter's mother-in-law has the fever, can't serve them. Jesus heals her immediately. She gets up and starts serving them. Is that special? Yeah, it's special. Does that mean that Simon, now Peter, knows that Jesus is the Lord? I don't think so. Not quite yet. But we get to Luke chapter 5. Look at verses 8 through the first part of verse 10. But when Simon Peter saw it, this miraculous catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord, O Master, O the one who governs me. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had just taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. I think this is when the Messiah light goes on. I, I think this is it. I, I, think, and I think there's probably more for Simon Peter to get later on, but this is when he goes, hey, I'm not really supposed to be hanging out with you. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinner. Have you had that moment? If you know Jesus, there was probably some point where you understood that he is God and he is perfect and he is absolutely righteous. And it was a little bit spooky. Have you had that moment? I shouldn't be with you. We shouldn't be together. God's holiness shines an uncomfortable light on our depravity. If you think God is going to be lucky to have you in his heaven. That's a red flag. It really is. God's holiness shines an uncomfortable light on our depravity. I think some of you are probably right there now. You've actually believed that there is a God of the universe and maybe even that Jesus is the Lord, but it's kind of at this point creeping you out. 
you're like, keep them at arm's length. My mom went to Cabo one time. I mean, this was back when I was a very young Christian. She was not yet a Christian. And she brought me back a t-shirt from Cabo down in Mexico that said, Jesus is coming. Everyone look busy. That's that's what I'm talking about. That's the point. Jesus is Lord, and man, that spooks the snot out of me. I, I, I believe He is who He says He is. I just can't understand how He would love me, and I want to avoid Him or the thought of Him in every possible way. If, if you're in that spot, if Jesus scares you to death, I want you to know that there's more to this story then depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinner. There's much more. In fact, the magnificence of Christ, which should create a personal crisis, that's what we talked about, it also enables and actually demands a greater response to His call. Look at the rest of this story. Verse 10, And Jesus said to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. I mean, that, that's precious. Simon, Peter, you don't need to be afraid of me. You know why? Because I have great intentions for you. I did not come to kill you. I could, but I choose not to. I actually have great intentions for you. I'm going to use you to accomplish great things in this world, Peter. I know you don't think you have anything to do with me, but I have everything to do with you and what you will do, Peter. You're going to be a partner in my ministry. I'm going to use you to do profound things. Peter, I have great intentions for you. Intentions to do what? And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Matthew chapter 4 verse 19 basically tells the same story. And in that passage, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here it says, catchers of men. You will catch men. The the word catch, it's a great word, it means to catch alive. And instead of fish, it's going to be men. And that's, that's really cool. Think about it. Just turn this on its ear a little bit. Simon Peter, John and James, sons of Zebedee, they've spent their whole lives catching live fish so that they could kill them, sell them to feed their family. Nothing wrong with that. But Jesus says, I've got greater things in mind. Instead of catching live fish and making them dead, you're going to catch dead men and by my gospel give them life. That is a pretty cool step up. That's the point of this passage. Jesus didn't die on the cross to get you to come to church, my friends. That wasn't the point. He died on the cross to deliver you from a mundane slavery to sin so that you could fish for men. 
That's his point. That's the point of this passage. That's really the point of Scripture. You can say he's a, we are fishers of men. You can say we are disciple makers. I think those are synonymous expressions. But he had great intentions when he saved you. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, it is for the purpose of making disciples. It is for the purpose of fishing for men. It isn't just Peter, James, and John. It's everyone who would believe in Jesus. Everyone who would believe in Jesus is supposed to use the gifts that God has given unto God's glory for the kingdom, participating in ministry so that we might invest in others who will then invest in others. And it is a glorious step up from mundane slavery to sin. David Platt has a quote I'd like to read to you. David Platt, by the way, wrote a book called Follow Me. This whole sermon is plagiarized. Just need to know that. He said, quoting Jesus, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Notice in his invitation that Jesus does not tell his disciples what he will call them to do. Instead, Jesus tells them what he will cause them to do. The command he would give to them could only be accomplished by the work that he would do in them. I think that is so encouraging. I want you to understand it. Isn't it great to know that God doesn't just call us, he causes us? By the transformation of our soul upon conversion, he makes us disciple makers. Did you know that? I think that's really encouraging. I think if it's up to me and I'm going to do it in my flesh, I get burnt out. But if I understand that God has given me gifts so that I can make disciples, so that I can be a fisher of men, so that you can be a fisher of men, then it's just walking in the new creation that God has created. I think that should be encouraging. I think this next David Platt quote should be a little bit challenging. Ready? So, what is keeping us from obeying this command today? I mean, every single one of us. Why are so many supposed Christians sitting on the sidelines of the church, maybe even involved in the machinery of the church, but not wholeheartedly, passionately, sacrificially, and joyfully giving their lives to making disciples of all the nations? Could it be, David Platt, not West, don't shoot the messenger, could it be, but I think it's a great message, could it be, Because so many people in the church have settled for superficial religion instead of supernatural regeneration. He just totally called us out. And if if you listen to that, you should realize that we have just been challenged. A few years ago, I said that people who aren't making disciples are rogue Christians. Some of you might remember that. Some of you really liked it. A couple of you, not so much. You you thought it was insensitive or too strong or, or something. I said it, by the way, because Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, 
Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. It's the great commission. It's the great commandment to us for what we are supposed to do. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have taught you. And I will be with you, Jesus, not me. I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And so I said, if you are a Christian and Jesus is your Lord, and He has said, go and make disciples, and it's the last command He gave before He ascended to the right hand of God, and you're not doing it. You're a rogue Christian. I said that, and some people got upset. For those who got upset, let me just encourage you never to go to David Platt's church, because I'm a patsy compared to David Platt. When he says, and let me read it again, could it be Because so many people in the church have settled for superficial religion instead of supernatural regeneration. He's not calling you a rogue Christian. He's saying, I'm not sure you're a Christian at all. I'm a patsy compared to David Platt. But I'll also tell you this. David Platt is a patsy compared to Jesus. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, four chapters later, Unless you're willing to take up your cross, that's a term of sacrifice. Unless you're willing to take up your cross and follow me daily, you're not worthy of me. And so look, I get that many of you have grown up in churches saying it's okay to sit in a pew. It's okay to be passive. It's okay not to invest in people. Let the pastoral staff do that. You give tithes to pay us, so we'll do the work of ministry. I get that many of you have heard that. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I'm telling you. And it would be unloving of me to tell you anything else because your greatest joy is going to be found in service of the kingdom of God, using your gifts, investing in people, making disciples, I promise. The question we have to answer today then is this. What claim can Jesus reasonably reasonably make on our lives? My best friend in Mammoth, California is a guy named Tim Standifer. I've talked about him before. I love him. He's funny. He's faithful. He's He's just great. He loves the Lord. I've been in Houston now 12 years. I was in Mammoth before for four years, and that's where we became such good friends. You know, for the last 12 years, I have invited my good friend, Tim Standifer, who still lives in Mammoth, California, a ski resort 8,000 feet above sea level, right near Yosemite National Park, suffering for Jesus, Tim Standifer. (laughs) I've asked him every year, Tim, won't you please come to Houston this summer to visit me? He's never come once. He can't come in the winter. He does snow removal. Somehow, he doesn't think it's worth the drive to Houston in the summer. Somehow, I'm not worth that. Now, last spring, I went to a pastor's conference in San Diego And I called him and I said, I'm in San Diego. I'm only seven hours away. And man, the weather's great down here. He drove all the way down. We played golf. We had dinner. He stayed the night. I understand how far Tim Standifer will go for my friendship. (laughs) I get it. I get it. How far would you go for Jesus? 
how far would you go? And when they had brought their boats to land, verse 11, they, Peter, James, and John, left everything and followed Jesus. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to leave everything? When they leave their boats, when they leave their nets, they don't just leave their occupation, they leave their identity. If someone says, hey, what are you about? All three of these guys goes, I'll tell you what I'm about. I'm about fishing. That's what I do for a living. It's an honest living. I make a better than average living. I'm a fisherman. How do you provide for your family? Maybe the most important thing they do, I fish all night long. I work my tail off, but I make a good, honest living. I got a boat. I'm kind of a big deal. If Jesus said, leave it all behind, what would you do? I don't think he is saying you've got to leave your vocation and this is not a sermon about moving to sub-Sahara Africa. It really isn't. Sometimes the best place to catch men is right where we fish. That's not the point. The point is, how far would you go if Jesus asked? What's off limits? Are, are you willing to write Jesus a blank check. Grace Bible Church exists to glorify God by making disciples who transform the world. We have defined discipleship just so that there is clarity. Discipleship is an intentional and relational process. It's not just a Bible study. It's not a systematic theology class. It's intentional and it is relational. It's a process by which people are equipped and mobilized into God's kingdom work. We exist to glorify God by making disciples who transform the world. We've told you what we believe discipleship is, an intentional and relational process by which people are equipped and mobilized into God's kingdom. And I'm here to tell you tonight that we equip people to make disciples, we equip people to fish for men in our growth groups and in our community groups. Programmatically, that's how we do it. There are other ways to do it, but programmatically, we have found that to be the most effective way to make disciples. Let me tell you about these discipleship small groups. They're not perfect. We, we have a lot of people leading them, and those people are growing in their faith as they lead. So they're, they're not perfect. We've worked really hard to make them really good. But if you're looking for perfect, they won't be perfect. They're also not convenient. They're every week, normally on the day of the week that you're most tired. That's just how it works. It's inconvenient. It's a couple of hours. It's intimate relationships, uncomfortably accountable relationships. They're not perfect. They're not convenient. They're also not Bible study. Bible study just gives you more information about the Bible. We're trying to equip, which is partly Bible study, but also ministry skills, and ultimately mobilize. We want to get you off your butts so that you can experience God most profoundly. 
They're our best efforts at intentionally and relationally equipping and mobilizing people to God's kingdom work. It's our best effort at discipleship. And when we open the doors, it is so that we might glorify God by producing disciples who transform the world. There are a couple of really good reasons not to do a growth group or a community group at Grace Bible Church. I just want you to know that this is me being flexible. If you are already up to your ears in fantastic disciple-making relationships, someone is pouring into you, you're pouring into a couple of people maybe, and, and you've got this great discipleship ministry, and it's already going really well, I get it. You don't have to be in a growth group or a community group. I get it. I totally do, and I applaud you. I mean, that, that is what we're about, blessings to you. If Another good reason not to do a growth group or a community group. If you were moving out of the country in the next couple of weeks, I'm good. Seriously. That's a kinder, gentler West. I'm good. I'll be honest with you. Most of the reasons I hear for not joining a small group are at least worth a careful re-examination. Let me tell you a couple of them, a few thoughts that I have in response. I'm too busy at work. My kids, schoolwork, sports, bedtime, make it really hard. Let me talk about the kids for a second. We started Grace Bible Church when Will was, I think, six. Rebecca was four. Annie Kate was yet to hit the ground and start her systematic takeover of the whole world. <laughs> I just delivered last week Will to Auburn University. It was... One of the hardest days of my life. I love him. I think one of the best things I did for Will, and I was pretty intentional in discipling Will. He's a great kid. I'm proud of him. I think one of the best things I ever did for him was show him that the world does not revolve around him. It's one of the best things that parents could do. Discipleship of a son or of a daughter means the world doesn't revolve around you. The world is about the kingdom. Let's go serve together. I'm telling you, that's a principle of parenting. That whether you're single or married, whether you have kids or not, just file it away. It's important. The best way for us to disciple our kids is by being intentional with other people while we disciple our kids. Don't use your kids as a reason to put the kingdom of God on pause. That is not good for your kids. Back to I'm busy at work. I get that you're busy at work. Everybody's busy at work. I wish we didn't have to work. I just came from sabbatical. I'm telling you, there's something to it. Whether it's work, whether it's hunting season, aren't all of these reasons essentially 
just saying, I'm too busy to do what Jesus has commanded me to do? Really? I mean, in the end, I want to press you on this because I think it's what the Bible says to press on. I think if you're too busy for discipleship, something is filling your life that isn't God's priority over discipleship. And maybe you need to reevaluate what matters most. The church might tell you other things should matter most. I don't buy it. The culture absolutely will tell you that other things matter most. I don't buy it. Maybe you need to put everything on the altar and go, Lord, what's really about your kingdom? Let me conclude by just anticipating one objection. I feel like this is a strong push, and I feel like some people are probably going to be a little defensive on this. And the objection that you might have already thought is, West is saying this to get people into Grace Bible Church small groups. It's absolutely right. (laughs) It is, but maybe you've misunderstood my motive. Another, the final David Platt quote. Why are so few followers of Christ personally fishing for men when this is designed to be central in every Christian's life? Could it be because we have fundamentally misunderstood the central purpose for which God has created us? And could it be that as a result, please hear this, we are completely missing one of the chief pleasures God has planned for us? Am I trying to get you to sign up for growth groups or community groups? The answer is yes. Am I doing it for Grace Bible Church? The answer is no. I'm actually pleading for you to do this or pleading for you to be intentional in disciple-making for your sake. It is one of the ways we experience Christ most profoundly. You'll never know God the way God wants to be known until you're doing what He commands you to do. And it is for you as much as it is for me the joy of our existence. And so I I do want you to be in a growth group or a community group. And if if you're already making disciples in a profound way, blessings and, and don't join. But if you're not, I think it's important. And it's not perfect, but it's the way we equip and mobilize people to other disciple-making relationships and other participations in the kingdom of God where we experience Jesus most profoundly. So drop your nets, leave your boats, let's get after it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for including us in your kingdom. God, forgive us when we try to wedge your will into our schedules. God, I pray instead that our schedules would be defined by your will. And God, I 
I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would become increasingly rabid about investing in other people's lives and about relationships that exist for your glory and for your kingdom's expansion. God, I pray that we would have eyes to make disciples near and far in every aspect and nook and cranny of our lives. I pray that we would invest. And I pray that we would do it in a way that brings great glory to your name. And I pray, God, that our growth groups and our community groups this fall, next spring, would equip us more thoroughly to do your work of catching men, of making disciples. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.